Turn with me to Acts chapter 5, please. We're continuing in our Acts series, um, Church as it should be, ought to be, as it should be. There we go. Uh, learn the tagline, Steve. Um, and uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, I'm just going to read a few verses before where Joe uh, taught us well last Sunday, just so you can get a little bit of, uh, of context. Um, pick up in verse 34 of chapter 4. There, were, uh, there was much grace upon them all from the Lord Jesus. There were no needy persons among them, speaking of the community of believers. Um, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, sold... Is it Sapphira or Sapphira? Vauxhall, Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira. I never know. I'll probably do both, just to keep you on your toes. Um, a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money uh, that belonged, um, some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard uh, what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It's not a passage that you read to preach that gets a cheer afterwards, like some do. Lord Jesus, we come to you. Uh, we give you our hearts. We come sober-minded. We, we come with the fear of God in the right sense we trust. God, would you help us just to handle these verses, Lord, that you, or we believe that in these verses are truths that will equip us as disciples to live for you in this town and in this world so that many might know Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and help us now as we open up this word. Amen. 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 So uh, Joe asked some great questions last week in the first part of that passage where we read about generosity and money being laid at the apostles' feet. He asks questions that we can ask in our application as disciples. What can I, I wrote them down, what can I give? What can I share? What can I do? These are really good questions to ask and we'll come back to them uh, later on. This passage today teaches us that it really isn't about the money uh, at all. Uh, I've got some money here, Ruel gave it to me this morning. It's, it's not about the money. Stop looking at the money. Whatever you do, don't look at the money. Don't run and pick up the money. Uh, Ruel, I'm really sorry. They were in order uh, of denomination and, and now they're not. We will pick them up later. Uh, it's not about the money. This passage is about the holy heart of God and it's about our hearts 
uh, as men and women before him. We, we were reading about the foundations that are being laid of a generous church with a generous culture uh, in this new church community. They are realizing they've been loved so freely and lavishly by God and they're beginning as a result of that to express their love for one another. They're learning to love Jesus, to love one another and to love Jerusalem uh, as is their uh, context. Um, and we get these two snapshots uh, that we've touched on last week and this morning. Uh, um, the, the wonderful thing, I love the way the Bible doesn't hide these kinds of stories away. If you or I were writing the history of Crawley Community Church, we, we might not publish this one. It's not such, it doesn't speak so well of us. It doesn't put us in credit. The Bible doesn't hide these stories away. The Lord has things to say to us. And obviously when we, fight, when we choose, as we've done, to preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, we can't avoid them either. We can't just pick our favorite passages as preachers. We've got to wrestle and grapple uh, with what the Word of God says, even when it's tough for us. So we have a good example. We have Barnabas, um, who brings money from uh, the sale of some of his property. He puts it at the apostles' feet. It's still the same way churches work now. We work that way today. We give of our first fruits. Sometimes here people do have things they sell. More often than not, it's our regular weekly, monthly giving from our income. And as a part of our worship to the Lord, we lay it at the elders' feet um, and we uh, leave it to the team of elders and the apostolic team within the family of churches that we're in to, to distribute the finance that we give uh, in accordance with the mission of the kingdom. We've got a good example of Barnabas. And then we get what seems to us if we didn't have the, the insider commentary, the director's cut, what seems to us to be a mirror example. If you were in the Jerusalem church, you'd see Barnabas coming, laying a stack of money at the apostles' feet, and you go, oh, wonderful, celebrate, what a great guy. Then you'd see Ananias and Sapphira coming, laying a stack of, hey, wonderful, what a fantastic couple, except we get the inside story here. It's not a mirror image after all. It's only a mirror image until you see their hearts. This story has... Uh, Real similarities with the story that used to terrify me as a boy. I had a picture Bible with a picture of this story in Joshua 7 with Achan. Just after God's people had taken Jericho, the walls had come tumbling down. Uh, and God says uh, through Joshua, they're not to take any of the, of the, of the, uh, of the riches of the city for themselves. Uh, it's to be given over to the Lord. He's a holy God. Achan sees it. It glitters. It gets his attention. Temptations formed in his heart. He takes it. He can't do anything with it. He hides it in his tent. Uh, they try and take the next city, Ai. They fail miserably. God says, hey, somebody has disobeyed me. There's deceit in the people of God. And uh, this, this terrifying story where in the end Ai is exposed and his heart is exposed and, and uh, God deals with him in accordance with his sin. It's a very similar passage here in the New Testament. How does Peter know? I don't think he had a network of spies through the new community of the church. That's not how it worked. Uh, the Bible teaches us about words of knowledge and the gift of discernment. These are spiritual gifts. And I think uh, as Peter looked at Barnabas and then as Peter looked at Ananias, the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter. I think that's what was going on here. Uh, and prophetic words, often what you often get a prophetic gift, a word of knowledge with a gift of discernment. The two can often work together. And, and so not only does Peter get a, a suddenly a clear insight into what's happening, hey, what's going on here? But it, the Holy Spirit also gives Peter the ability to discern some of the motives that are behind, the origins, as it were, of, of the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. And so he asks this question uh, to them in verse 3. These are, these are 
difficult words. Has Satan so filled your heart? Has Satan so filled your heart, Ananias? The word filled, uh, Luke, Luke uh, is the writer of, of Acts. We've said that, gone through this series. I love the way he documents these stories. Luke uses the same word in his own gospel. Luke chapter 8, verse 23. There's a story where Jesus and his disciples are crossing the lake of Galilee. A storm comes. These experienced fishermen who've seen all kinds of storms are in the boat with Jesus. Jesus is asleep. And these guys who've been through many storms believe in the moment they're going to drown. Such is the seriousness of the storm. And the fact that, as Luke says this word, their boat is filled with water. It's the same word in the Greek that Luke uses in Acts uh, 5 here. Has Satan so filled your heart? He uses the same word in, in, in Luke chapter 8 to say the disciples' boat was filling up. It was about to be swamped. You get an idea of it? Absolutely. There it is. There's no truth in the rumor that that's Mark Kendall's new boat. Um, <laughs> just seen floating out to sea. Uh, sorry, Mark. <laughs> um, and uh, they're swamped. Um, I wonder with Ananias and Sapphira, was there some hidden pressure in their lives? Was there some storm that we aren't told about here? Was there some fear of finance or debt they were under? Was there a fear of being overlooked in all the good stories that were going on in the church? Was there something which opened the way for Satan to begin to fill their boat with water, to fill their hearts with deceit? It just takes one little turn in our hearts. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, when we get baptized in the Spirit, that word for baptism in Greek means to, to submerge, to totally soak, to drown us in the Holy Spirit. Um, Peter says to Ananias, he doesn't say, have you been so filled with the Holy Spirit? He says, has Satan so filled your heart? Satan has no access to fill our hearts as believers unless in the storms we give him room. Unless we pick out a place, a hole, uh, through fear, through sin, through deceit. We just allow things. We may think it's just a small thing hidden away in my heart. It doesn't really matter. I've got control of this. But over time, we begin to realize, hey, something is beginning to fill in my boat. The water level is rising. This is serious stuff, church. I had to stop a few times as I was preparing earlier this week and just get down on my knees in my office and at home just to pray things through. If, if, if you know your boat is filling up today, it's time to repent and to turn back to Jesus. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, he says, you've lied to God. Again, if people are wondering, is that, who's the Holy Spirit? Is, he kind of, is, is it God and then Jesus and then the Holy Spirit? The Bible's very clear. Father, Son, and Spirit. We worship a three-in-one Trinitarian God. And so Peter can say, in one breath, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. In another breath, you've lied to God himself. You've lied. How do, how do, we, uh, how do we know that Satan's filled Ananias' heart? Well, it's because deceit is coming out of his mouth. <laughs> and Satan is the deceiver. Um, Satan is a liar. As we work our way through Acts, and we're beginning to see this now as we move into the, the chapters 4, 5 onwards, we, Acts highlights for us a number of strategies, deceitful strategies that Satan uses to try and bring down the church. And he's not creative. He uses the same strategies today. Persecution, distraction, uh, scattering of believers, infighting and hatreds and bitternesses, money, sex, power. They're the same strategies and deceits. He's the same lying deceiver today. He's still operating the same way if we'll give him room, which is why as disciples we continually come in repentance to Jesus. And if you're looking to discern the fruit of, of Satan in our lives, it's pretty easy to discern. 
It was easy here once Peter knew. If there's a spirit of lying and deceit, that doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. Uh, A spirit of lying and deceit means in our lives we begin to hide things. Does that speak to you this morning? Begin to try and control situations or people become manipulative. Where we see this kind of spiral of behavior in a believer, or we even recognize it in our own hearts, it's not the fruit of the Holy Spirit, friends. Somehow, somewhere, Satan has got some access. Uh, he operates in the, in the hidden. What do we know of the Holy Spirit, the beautiful Holy Spirit? He's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of Jesus. Wow. He's the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. He's the, one, he's the very opposite. He brings things into light. He brings things into the open. And, and so we're, we're just confronted this morning as we read this passage. We can think some of these apparently small inner decisions of our hearts don't matter. Like when one of our toddlers started picking at a little bit of wallpaper in their bedroom one night when they wouldn't go to sleep in. And then after about a month, you think, are we redecorating the whole room here? Um, we, we think it doesn't matter. Just one or two little things that we pick at. We never set out to lie to God. And yet this is the direction that our deceit takes us in. Let's be aware of that. In verse 4, uh, Peter deals with the issue of the money. It's not about the money. It really isn't. Stop looking at the money. Um, you obviously realize it's monopoly money, uh, not freshly printed euros. Otherwise, you'd have been rushing down here to pick up the notes. Tony, you've been really good. Um, help yourself, mate. Um, <laughs> try spending that. Uh, it's not about the money. Peter says, hey, it was yours to do with as you saw fit. The issue isn't here, oh, he, he stole me. He should have given. We have to give everything to God. That's not what's being taught in this passage. It's not about shortchanging God. The sin here is lying. The sin here is hypocrisy in this new holy community. And what, what's the outcome from that? Well, verse 5, verse 10, it's this immediate judgment. I mean, it's, it's terrifying. It, we're right to be terrified in, in one sense. Um, we get this, I love the way the story is told. You get the same story, the second half with Sapphira, Sapphira, um, and uh, she has an opportunity he says, is, is this the amount you got? She, there's a pause there, I'm sure. She's swallowing hard. Peter gives her a chance. He knows now what's been going on. God is patient that we should repent. Friend, there's always a way out. There's always a chance to repent. Don't go home today. Don't leave this place without having put something right in your heart. Don't think, I'll leave it another time or I'll continue on in any deceit that I'm carrying. There's a moment to get it right. And this was Sophia's moment before God. Peter says, was this the amount? At that point, she should have said, oh, Peter, forgive me. I'm heartbroken. I'm so sorry. We were lying. Um, actually, we've kept some of it back because we were nervous about our pension or we were worried about a bill for the car. It would have been okay. She would have repented. She would have been restored. Things would have been put right. Instead, she tests the Holy Spirit. And there's this immediate judgment. Verse 5 on Ananias. Verse 10 on his wife, Sophia. What incredible authority given to Peter as an apostle. Uh, he can just speak these words. Uh, and it's like the very words of God. I guess Jesus had said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. This, in part, is what the keys of the kingdom look like. This is the kind of stuff they unlock. If, when we talk about church discipline, and sometimes we have to, as any local church family does, you know, where, when things can't be put right and where there isn't repentance, the, we think the end point is that we put people out of the church. And it's very painful and sad when we have to do that. That's not the end point of church discipline. This is, this is the ultimate end point of church discipline this morning, that Jesus puts someone out of the church. And that's what happens here. Um, and it's rightly frightening. Judgment is 
a sobering thing to look at. Romans 6, 23, um, the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin, what we earn for our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The, the consequence of our sin ultimately is, is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Um, sin matters. It really matters. We can sit here thinking we've got plenty of time left in our lives and think I've got time to sort that out and deal with that later. But sin matters. Every little sin matters and it matters all the time in our lives. Uh, And it always leads to judgment from our perfectly righteous, holy God. Uh, Most of us, as I've said, think we can put it off till till later. Um, When I go out on the streets and speak sometimes to, to young people. They say, I'll, I'll, I'll look at that when I'm an older person, when, I'm, uh, you know, when I've had some fun, when I've lived a little bit. No, no, we, most of us think we can put it off. Um, we won't face judgment till we die. By then, maybe I'll have sorted things out when I stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.27 tells us man is destined, men and women, mankind is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. There's a sobering verse. I love verse 28, the very following verse in Hebrews 9. It goes on to tell us that Christ has died once. We die once and face judgment, but Christ has died once in order to take away the sins of the people. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your finished work on the cross. So thankfully, you and I, if we're in Christ, though we will die, though we will face the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, there is a Savior who has died already. There's one who's gone before us, the pioneer, the author of our faith. And we are declared to be righteous in him. Uh, and so we can declare with Paul in Romans 8.1, hey, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, one day I'm going to face the judgment seat of Christ, but I do so knowing that I'm covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My filthy robes, my sinful history, they've been taken off me, they've been put on Jesus, and in exchange, his beautiful perfection, his ever-present holiness, his, uh, his shining, bright righteousness, I've been clothed in it, and when I stand before the judgment seat, he sees that instead of that, and Jesus takes it on the cross, and I'm, I'm told, welcome, come in, come right into the center room of the Father's house, let's put a ring on your finger, and a robe on your back, and new sandals, let's have a feast, because you belong here. Hallelujah. This is the gospel. It's a gospel that means that we don't avoid the judgment, but we're declared righteous on the day of judgment. One way or the other, friends, we're all going to face the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, whether it comes quicker than we think or whether we live a long life. How we live really matters. Ananias and Sapphira faced it earlier than many of us. I don't think they were expecting it when they came to bring their offering to church that day. Um, What we see is that the decisions we make in our heart, they're seen by God who knows all things. And the decisions we make, even the little ones, the ones that are picking at the wallpaper, they have consequences. Um, if, If we think we've got away with it, it didn't happen to me like it happened to Ananias and Sapphira, we haven't fooled the Holy Spirit. We have to be very careful if we think we may be in the realms of testing God, as it says here in this passage. God sees my heart and he sees yours. I know some people, and particularly you read Western modern thinking commentators who have some real wisdom, but many of them think this is a harsh, offensive story. It's more akin with the kind of Old Testament God that likes to strike people down. This isn't the God of love of the New Testament. Isn't this all a bit of an overreaction by God, really? Was he having a bad day? It's that kind of thought that people have. 
Certainly, people say it's the kind of story we should keep quiet. We want to reach Crawley with the good news of Jesus. Don't share stories like this that will just, um, uh, just reinforce all their beliefs uh, about us crazy Christians. Certainly for us, we don't want to think, does God kill people? Or even, does God kill people who believe in him? These are big and frightening questions. I think Ananias and Sapphira were believers in Jesus. They were saved. Um, this story where Joe opened it up last week in Acts 4.32 is that the context is all the believers were together. Within that context, we're taught about Ananias and Sapphira. I think they were believers. Um, they knew the Holy Spirit in order to lie to the Holy Spirit. I, I, again, we don't know how it worked out in this way. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira, maybe they made a promise either in their hearts or even with their friends in the church that everything we get from the sale of this land, we're going to give it to the Lord. Hallelujah. Everyone cheers. Yeah. And then in his heart, he says, oh, I'm going to keep some back for myself. We don't know how it worked out, but I do believe they were children of God who received the discipline of their father. Again, Hebrews 12 8 tells us if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Bizarrely, remarkably, this church discipline proves the fact that they were legitimate children of God because he took their sin seriously. Ananias and his wife, I guess they were conspiring together to gain attention and praise in the church, but it was conspiracy that led to sin and death. I think... And I understand why we'd say, oh, why is this story in the Bible? But as I've looked at it again and grappled with some of my unbelief around stories like this, I think maybe we don't understand holiness. Maybe I don't recognize fully that my inner heart decisions really can grieve the heart of a holy God and really can impact our whole community and our mission together. Uh, I think in 2001, when did we move to Top Street? 2001? Something like that, just before Jude was born. Yeah, March 2001. We bought a big old Edwardian co-op, grocers and butchers. And uh, we did loads of work in it. Kevin, the builder, kind of lived with us and his cement mixer in our lounge for about six months. And there was, a, there was a room in our house that we couldn't access. As you went up our big stairs, the top of the stairs, I'm looking at you, Mum, you can remember this, current top of the stairs. You didn't know it wasn't there, but there was a room over our lounge upstairs that... that Years ago, I'd been hived off by next door, some flying lease or something. And so we got to the top of our stairs, turned right, accessed the other rooms, couldn't get into our big front upstairs bedroom. After a couple of years, I think we've remortgaged, we knocked next door, had a few good chats with them, negotiated a price, we bought the upstairs room. And uh, there was a day that came uh, where they came from one side and we came from the other with Kevin and our sledgehammers, the builder, and we knocked through into the room and uh, made a lot of mess at the top of the stairs. Ever gone up the top of your stairs and just hit the wall with a sledgehammer? It's great fun. And uh, we went through into a room that was in our house but that we'd never seen, we'd never accessed, we'd never got into. It didn't have our stuff in. It didn't look like our house. We had to put their stuff out. We blocked up their doorway. We secured it. We didn't leave a door on there. Oh, yeah, the, onto their landing so they could access the room at any time. We, well, of course not. We didn't even say, oh, we'll put a lock on that. No, we, we took the door out. We blocked it up. We double-paneled it. We plastered over it. You never even knew there was a door there. We brought that room into line with the rest of the home. Church, what am I saying? I'm saying the hidden rooms of our hearts, they really matter to God. Who's got access to the rooms of your heart? Where do you need to block up? Where do you need to open up to God? 
what we see in this passage is a a correct fear of God. This is the the kind of backstage stuff uh, that really generally only God sees and knows. But, But the rooms of our heart and how we operate with God and what we open up to and what we close to, they're the foundation for everything in our discipleship, friends. Let's not mess around there. Proverbs 4.23 has real wisdom where it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Or from that, everything else will flow. I was reading uh, Phil Moore's helpful comments on these verses. He says, Luke includes this story in Acts to teach us we cannot and dare not play act with external religion like the Pharisees or the pagans. Satan's happy with a church that's got a veneer, a layer of holiness, but underneath really is, is rotten. Uh, we bought another house once up north where the window frames looked great until we were woken in the first night there with the wind whistling and howling in through the window frames. And, and I, I looked underneath the wooden windowsill and realized that these, there were great big rotten holes there that had been stuffed with pairs of men's football socks. Uh, <laughs> the veneer might look good, church, but it can be rotten underneath. God cuts out the rot. He always will cut out the rot. It really matters. There's a holy people and a holy mission at stake. I think perhaps we're offended by these kinds of verses sometimes. Perhaps we're a bit more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. I'm very happy making judgments about unbelievers and their sinful lives out there. But somehow, in hypocrisy, I'm able to overlook sin in my own heart and sin in our hearts in the, in the fellowship of the believers. Church, hypocrisy matters to God. It matters to our mission. We're not on neutral ground. Either we're allowing Satan to begin to fill our hearts or we're saying, Holy Spirit, I repent. Would you fill my heart again? I don't want these things to be exposed in my life. Let's move on. Verse 5 and verse 10, again, in this kind of two-part story, it tells us that great fear seized the whole church. Fear, is the word used there is phobos, where we get our word phobia from. Uh, The old King James is better with it. It talks about dread grips them or terror. Uh, You can imagine, can't you? If if you went home, uh, if you've got family or friends that are not at church this morning, said, oh, how how was Sunday morning? (laughs) Oh, I don't even want to talk about it. Uh, it just it would be aw- truly awful, dread, literally dreadful. Um, and it says it seized the whole church. Back in Acts chapter 4, we, the same word is used where Peter and John were forcibly seized by the religious police. There's this, this fear is aggressive. It's shocking. It, 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 it's unexpected. Um, it woke them up. Um, if your heart is drifting away, from the Lord Jesus Christ with lots of little decisions that are leading you into a spiral of sin. May we be seized this morning by a right fear of God. May he come forcibly with conviction of sin and give us an urgent desire to repent and to please him over everything else. Great fear, it says. I bet there was some repenting in that Jerusalem church. Um, Some coming clean, some putting right. We worship a holy God. There was some house cleaning going on. Um, I think, uh, and we'll come to it in, in later weeks, one of the reasons why this house cleaning mattered is because we see greater fruitfulness that begins to, to follow. It's the same actually in, in the Joshua 7 story. They fail to take the city of Ai. They deal with can sin. Then Ai is given over to them by the Lord. There's a refining 
that brings revival. There's a refining that brings revival in our hearts. And uh, um, it's not our subject for today, but in verse 13, we read, understandably, no one dared to join them. (laughs) But verse 14 says, conversely, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. It's remarkable. It's a refining that leads to revival. There's a, there's a serious discipleship at Stake Church. The, we're saying the cost of entry is high. We don't just say prayer, prayer, come along to church. Nothing really needs to change. No, we're saying come and follow Jesus and give him your whole heart, every hidden area. We've got a town to reach. We, we've got nations to reach. So much of our evangelism in our kinds of churches over the last uh, 15, 20, years or so has been uh, much more kind of seeker focused. We've wanted to try and look and sound as much like our culture as possible in order to, to somehow earn uh, uh, an opening to reach them. And there's some value in that, of course. But this city of Jerusalem was changed because this new community was so radically, strikingly different. The quality of their lives, their relationships, the seriousness in which they took sin and the holiness of God, their generosity and their miracles. There's no cozy up to their culture here. This is light in darkness. It's contrast Christianity. Turn up to the maximum. These are people who look and sound like Jesus Christ. Wow. They're they're not weird or judgmental. They're not placard waving. The result of that would be verse 13. No one joined them because they were flaky. It doesn't say that. It says people saw Jesus. They were very much like Jesus. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus, so attractive. Jesus so loving, so welcoming, and yet so clean, so pure, so different. Jesus who, who gives us the opportunity to live for a greater prize and a greater treasure. If you live next door to one of these first century Christians who looks and sounds like Jesus, in the end you're saying, I want what they've got. I, I want to give up everything I have or to use the parable Jesus taught. I want to sell everything I have in order to possess this one thing, this, this greater prize, this greatest treasure that is Jesus Christ. Church, that's an authentic evangelism strategy. You didn't know you'd find that in the Ananias and Sapphira story. Go live loving, serving, holy lives in the town, in your workplace, in your home, in your street. Let's show people who Jesus really is. So what about us? We're on a serious mission. Justin and I joked on Friday night, should we send the offering round again at this point? Um, do we need to look at our standing order forms, those who, who uh, give our worship through, uh, you know, automatically through the bank? Do we need to make some adjustments? Well, may- maybe we do. Maybe God is speaking to you about that this morning. But remember, it's not about the money. <laughs> it's about our hearts, first and foremost. This story is here, I think, as a reminder that God sees our hearts that he hates sin, that he's concerned for the purity of his church. In Revelation 2.23, he speaks right into the heart of the compromising church in uh, Thyatira. All the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Wow. We've got plenty of great vision here. I mean, next year, in terms of money, we're saying, God, we want to have the joy of giving away 60,000 pounds. It's a crazy kingdom goal. We want to lay some money at the apostles' feet in new ground and new frontiers. We want to give away leaders and plant churches. Great vision, but what about our hearts, church? That's what matters. And the kingdom momentum that we're longing for comes from individual heart decisions in people like you and me to put Jesus first. Um, where our hearts are, there our treasure is also. So what we do with our money, uh, whether we do obediently get baptized or not as a follower of Jesus, how we handle our relationships, 
the way we serve, our attitudes and our heart. These, these are all measures of discipleship for us that show there's an inner integrity when I'm putting Jesus first. They always lead to kingdom momentum. It's a refining that leads to revival. It stands or falls on our individual decisions before God of faith and integrity. Quickly, some uh, application. What about us? We had a, a lunch with a group of wider leaders last Sunday. Danny uh, is working this morning. Very helpful. Um, he, he, he was just uh, doing some teaching for us uh, with regard to our, our dreams for the kingdom vision. And he's saying we want to live this dream, but there are all kinds of buts in our lives that get in the way from us stepping into the greater things that God has for us. As I reflect on this story in Acts 5, I think there's a measure of all of us in Ananias and Sapphira. We can all look at this generous church culture that Joe opened up last week. We can all ask these good questions that Joe asked us. What can I give? What can I share? What can I do? Yeah, I want to get caught up in that. It's the kind of church I want to be in. But I can't quite let go of the, of the pull of some of the old sinful attitudes in my heart, and so I change the questions. What can I keep? <laughs> What's the minimum I can get away with giving away? Um, what can I hold on to? God, you can have this much, but we say, I want this. I want this kind of community. I want this kind of kingdom life, but I can't fully trust you. I can't fully let go. For Kaz and I, I think we've, we've, and we've not always been at our best, but we've been at our best when we've had moments in life where we said with regard to our money, at least, what, God, what can we release to you? What can we give to you? It's all come from you. Therefore, it, 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 you can decide where it all goes and you'll provide for us. I came very near. Uh, I'll tell this story briefly. Um, I must do it briefly. I came very near to my own Ananias moment. I've probably shared this with you before. Um, at our last church, we've been two years towards a gift day to buy a, a, a building. And uh, literally on a Thursday, gift day was on the Sunday. And we'd saved as a family. The kids were little. They'd been involved. Uh, and we'd all put our money in. It wasn't much in the scheme of things, but it was a lot for us. And on the Thursday, our car died. Uh, and uh, Thursday tea time, we sat around a dinner table in our house. And uh, I said to the family, hey, we, we can't operate without the car. So why don't we use the money that we've said we'll give in the gift day and we'll give that back into God as soon as we can once we've saved it up again, but we've, we've got to sort the car out. I thought that was wise stewardship, caring for my family and genuinely meaning to give the money further down the line. The children and my wife looked at me and said, you, we've promised this money to Jesus. Um, I'm grateful to God in that moment that I listened to the discipleship and the rebuke of my wife and children. And so I repented, we prayed around the table and uh, to cut the long story short, that um, nobody else knew about our predicament, but over the next three days, culminating in the Saturday morning, there were just envelope after envelope with cash in put through our front door. Nobody knew. We'd not, all we'd done is pray around our table. In fact, 10 minutes after we finished praying, the first envelope came through the door while we were having our tea. By the time we came to the gift day on the Sunday morning, three, four days later, not only had we bought a car the day before, more expensive than the one we'd had, uh, but we were able to give the amount that we'd saved up for the gift day plus an extra thousand pounds that was left over uh, that was my Ananias moment in that moment but a faithful God and the rebuke and discipleship of a family uh, meant I was not able to say what do I need to hold on to but what can I release for some of us it, as was exposed in my heart in that time it's the idol of savings it's my security I, I've just got to have a bit of a backstop um, I guess honestly what I'm what I'm 
exposing there is that I don't really believe Philippians 4.19 that says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. That's what I'm saying if the idol of savings is greater than my worship of Jesus Christ. For some of us, we just want to be seen to be taking part. We want to be accepted. We've got some insecurity, perhaps, or some pride. Um, we want people to know our exploits. Um, every time we have an offering, we want people to know. If, if leaders find out what I've given, even, even better. I, I'll give loudly and publicly. I don't think there are many of us like that, but perhaps it's in our hearts at times. We are the generation, after all, that every time we go out for a meal, we put a photo of it on Facebook. Or every time I go for a run, the time I've run in is listed on Strava for everyone to congratulate me on. That's, the, that's what's in our hearts, church. And so it's no surprise that it infects our worship and our giving from time to time. It's pride. Satan is filling our hearts. Some of us have dreams of these kinds of intentions, but they're just good intentions. The but means we'll never really fully trust God. Can't really take him at his word. And so I can have all the dreams for sacrificial kingdom living our life, but they're never matched by real actions, real faith in action, in giving, in kindness, in serving. Just keep on dreaming, but I'm never really going to do anything about it. Is that you or I this morning? Some of us are saying, hey, uh, this, is, this is great. No, really, I, I agree with you. Uh, but just let me get through this season of life. Um, but I, once my savings are sorted, once I've got that next job, once, I've, once we've bought, have you seen rents around here in the southeast? Once I've bought a house and got a mortgage, then I'll be able to, hey, once my car's mended, then I can honor God with my money. Are you or I saying those kinds of things? Again, what's happening here? Let's just expose it. I, I'm limiting God's ability to care for me and bless others through me by the circumstances that he has put me in, rather than believing his promises to care for me. If, that, if that's your eye today, let's break those restrictions. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's unbelief. Let's trust him. Let's come to him with fresh faith and thanksgiving and, and joy. The Lord says, test me in this. Put me first. Um, the, the, the amounts don't matter. Stop looking at the money. It's our hearts that he's interested in. So two questions to finish with. Why don't you stand with me. Joe, can you just come on the guitar a minute? I might sing a song. E, play an E. Let me ask you a question. Just lift up your hands before the Lord. It's a sign of submission to him, openness to him. It's been a sober message this morning. How is your boat in the water? Are there waters of deceit rising in your life? I really felt we can't let this one go this morning. Please don't walk out of the door with a hole beneath the waterline. Are there hidden attitudes you're keeping from God and others? Yeah, maybe there are storms in your life. There's all kinds of reasons and excuses why life's so overwhelming. But friends, do not give Satan the deceiver any foothold. Be alert. Don't be unaware of his schemes. Don't give him room. What do we do about that? I've been doing that. Yes, okay, repent. (laughs) Turn to Jesus. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the discipleship 101, it always starts with repent. Repent and believe. Repent. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. Question number two. How's your boat in the water? Number one. Number two. How's your fear of God? Is there true reverence? Yeah, we've got our hands in the air right now. We sing our songs of worship. We do all the externals. But what about the hidden rooms in your house, in your heart? Are there rooms that are closed to God? Are things that where you say, God, you, you may not go in there. <laughs> That's my room. Are there attitudes in your mind? Or is there a holy fear, a desire to please God above all else? Lord, you have every room in my house. <laughs> you have the keys. <laughs> I welcome you, Holy Spirit. 
Yeah, yeah, we can sing songs. We can send round offering boxes. But Lord, we repent today. We genuinely want to be seized with a godly fear and conviction. Would you fill us again with your Holy Spirit? Lord, may things be dealt with this morning. May they be put right. May doors be closed to sin. May we be empowered to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. There's some here who have not yet given your lives to Christ. Now's the time. You come in the same way that we've just prayed. We say, repent, <laughs> turn away, turn to Jesus. Close the door to your old master, Satan, sin and death. Open the door to the life-giving presence of Jesus Christ who will clothe you in his rightness. Holy Spirit, for all of us, would you help us to believe your promises and to live in the light of the fact that we believe your promises? And would you release us to go live joyful, holy lives that shine like stars in our wicked and depraved generation? Lord, may we not have any need in my life or in this church for this kind of church discipline, we pray. And we mean that as we pray it, Lord. Help us, we pray. Amen.